Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, nudges. Welcome to this month's episode of Obehave. I am Mike Hughes, and today I have the head of Ogilvy Consultants Behavioural Science Practice, Mr. Sam Tatum. Hi, Nudges. Hi, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Nudges everywhere. Um, So, Sam, we were very lucky to have uh, a really interesting um, podcast interview e this month, who was it? Can you tell the listeners who it was? Niriel, Mike. So really fortunate to be connected with, with Nir uh, as he launches sort of his second book, in, Indistractable. I think many of us, certainly many of us in, in, in the team uh, will have read Hooked. I imagine many of our listeners will yeah. have read Hooked and, and taken lots of learnings. Um, from from his sort of number one bestseller. Yeah, um, I am. I'm checking my phone while you're saying this, but I am listening. So it, it is, well, yeah. this is the problem. This yes. is the problem. This yeah, is, yeah. It's taken yeah. you and no, I. No, I am listening. Lo- <laughs> yes, definitely, I'm listening. It's taken us far too long to get in a room together to to, to, yeah. to speak about this. But but really, as we look at the transition that Nir has been on from from writing Hooked and some of the theory that we've seen that's really populated um, many organisations across the world in in how to in, engage. Um, in in more sort of habit forming products yeah. um, uh, from from social media through to um, positive uh, 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 consumption behaviours yeah, yeah, uh, of yeah. high nutrition foods. I mean, this is a framework that's been super helpful, and I think uh, as Nir has has gone deeper into this, um, uh, his his next book, Indistractable, uh, which we thoroughly recommend. Um, looks at just uh, how we can start to in- increase human agency mm. um, to make sure we have time for the right stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and, and you, see, so you spoke to Nia. How did you find the journey that he'd been on from his first book to this book? I think one of the most important, I think when Nia wrote Hooked, essentially dissecting lots of psychological theories yes. yeah, to, yeah. to see how we can drive uh, habitual behaviour. And I think in some degrees from, from our discussion, some of that can be taken, uh, or at least the perceived power of this yeah, might be taken yeah. too extreme, right? Yeah. Um, and there's an assumption that, that, sh- that we don't have any agency. Mm. Uh, and I think Nir is, uh, firstly, I think, um, has a strong point of view on, on human agency and, and the balance between... Um, developing engaging products uh, and uh, and and the distance between sort of engagement and what might be um, uh, d- dangerous activity or, mm. or addiction I think a very strong point of view that near and I discuss on on the podcast but also near has discussed in previous discussions um, uh, when he's when he's interviewed on on, on that uh, on those topics but I think in indistractable um, it's He's focusing on as much um, our, our ability to make time. Uh, if yeah. the opposite of, of distraction is traction, how can we make time for traction? And how can we bring um, the same elements of our psychology into our life mm. um, to, to try to get us uh, off our email as, as, as much yeah. as we possibly can, um, to, to spend time with loved ones and, and family, and, and to make time for the things that matter. And sometimes 
wasting time is okay if we plan to make to waste time. Yeah. Social media is okay. My favorite time of all the time. <laughs> it's scrolling is absolutely fine if you're planning to scroll, yeah. but 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 boosting that sense of agency so we we're um, more mindful and and um, able to to drive those behaviors. So people can listen to it if they want. If they want. If you make the time. If you can make the time, go and listen the, for the, the next one. hour. A fascinating chat, Sam. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you. Fantastic. So thanks, Nir. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on Obehave. It's a real pleasure to, to have you to talk about your latest book, Indistractable. My I pleasure. Think, thanks so much. Uh, many of our, our listeners um, will have likely read um, your, your book, Hooked. Um, so I think it'd be lovely first, before we get into um, some of the, the latest content of Indistractable, to talk a little bit about the journey that you've been on uh, since writing Hooked some of the sort of the discussions you've had in, in that process and, and what's led you to uh, becoming indistractable. Sure. So a few things have happened. Uh, one is that I think that there's been a renewed interest in uh, perhaps some of the, the downsides of this technology that can be used to change our behavior when it comes to uh, this, this idea of behavioral design and habit formation, which is what I study and teach uh, around this field. I think there's been some, uh, some added interest, I think, given the, the past few years. You know, when I wrote Hooked, uh, it was on nobody's mind that these technologies could be overused or yes. abused. Uh, yes. the, at the time, I was trying to convince people that you could use behavioral psychology to build products to, to, that people would want to use, as opposed to have to use. They just thought, you know, these products, the, the, these uh, founders in Silicon Valley, like Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Jack Dorsey, they just got lucky, right? Yes. And I was trying to convince folks that, no, actually, there's a lot of behavioral design going on here. There's a lot of uh, consumer psychology at play that if you understand, you can use those same tactics to help people form all kinds of habits. And so that's really why I wrote Hook. The, 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 the idea behind Hook was to democratize these techniques, right? Why should it just be the social media companies and the gaming companies that use behavioral design? All sorts of companies should be able to use these kind of techniques to help people live happier, healthier, more productive, more connected lives. And that's exactly what we've seen in the past five years since Hooked was published. Uh, there's been an explosion of companies that use the Hook model for mm. good. Mm. Uh, companies like uh, Paga is a, is a app in, in sub-Saharan Africa that have, has brought millions of previously unbanked people online and given them bank accounts through their cell phones uh, and, and built this habit of saving money. Uh, the company like Kahoot that just went public uh, recently, the most widely used enterprise, I'm sorry, most widely used educational software uh, in the world today, uh, Kahoot, they use the hook model as well. Fitbod is an app that, you know, that helps people form an exercise habit in the gym. So all of these products use the hook model to help people form healthy habits. That was always the intent of Hooked. And so it's been, been really wonderful to see over the past few years. But I think there's also been, as I mentioned earlier, this, this kind of um, renewed or perhaps a, a new fear of these technologies that perhaps the pendulum has swung the other way. It used to be I had to convince people that these techniques work. Yeah. Now I have to convince people that they actually don't work as well as they might fear yes. they work. <laughs> We've become so fearful and people equate behavioral design with mind control yes. and they use words like addiction yes. to denote that that somehow these products are making us do things and that's that's just a gross mischaracterization of what's going on here anybody who's actually built these products 
products knows how hard it is <laughs> to get people to do things through their products. Uh, what this is really about is, is on the margin, you know, influencing folks to help them do things they want to do. It's about persuasion, of course, yes. not coercion. And so that's, that, that's kind of the backdrop. And then one final thing I'll say in terms of the inspiration for this book was that I noticed that I myself was becoming distracted. That, uh, you know, one particular incident, particular incident I remember uh, was really kind of the, the capstone uh, of, of, of this project was when I was uh, with my daughter one afternoon and we had a, uh, an afternoon of, of playtime. We could just do whatever we wanted together. And uh, we had this activity book of things that daddies and daughters could do together. And uh, one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I wish I could tell you what my daughter said, but in that moment, I was distracted. I was uh, looking at my phone and I couldn't tell you what she said because while I was on my phone, she got the hint that whatever was on my phone was more interesting than she was. And she left the room. And the next thing I knew, I looked up for my phone and she was gone. She'd gone to play with some toy outside. And that's when I said, wow, this is, this is a problem. What's going on here? And so originally I thought, oh my goodness, maybe I, I've opened the Pandora's box here. Maybe people shouldn't <laughs> use these techniques and these technologies. And I kind of blamed the technology at first. But then the more I dove into this topic and the more I actually started to research the central question of the book, which is, why do we do things against our better interest? Right? Why do we do things we know we shouldn't do or don't do the things we know we should do? Uh, once I dove into that question, I realized that it was much, much bigger than just our technology. And so that's really what the book is about. It's about you know, how do we do what we say we're going to do. The latest uh, challenge when it comes to distraction is, of course, our devices. But it turns out that the psychology of distraction is much more interesting and much more useful in terms of our day-to-day -day lives to make sure that we do the things we really want to do. And I think and it's, I've got a 14-month-old daughter and, and reading through your book over the last few weeks, there are moments clearly that resonate completely, right? And I think actually certainly elements of the book that um, in setting up the challenges that we all have with distraction are, are, so, are so clear and I suppose tech at the moment provides more channels. Uh, but as you say, and I think in, in, in further commentary around um, the, the challenge, we're not puppets on the street. Uh, right. we, we know that uh, we, we know that we probably shouldn't be spending it. And, and there's a there's a, a careful line that I think there was a, a great fruitful discussion between, between yourself and Ezra Klein recently about sort of addiction versus engagement. And, right. and, and it's worth listeners actually re reviewing that because I think um, it was a it was a great discussion. And I think um, the, the biggest difference that I found from from reading Indistractable is shifting um, the power, at least uh, the, the focus onto what is controllable. Um, so to, to, to personal agency and arming us with the skill sets and um, some of the frameworks that might facilitate that. Uh, while being mindful, as you say, there are, we're working on products that help um, drive engagement. Engagement is good right. um, to a degree, and there's a, there is a slippery slope for addiction. But as, as you mentioned, I think, in, in your discussion with Ezra, people can become addicted to putting Q-tips in their ears. Right. Um, there, right. There, there, are, there are different levels there. Um, right. I think we really want to be careful about how we characterize these various behaviors because yes. what, what folks don't understand is that by making these products into scapegoats, yes. uh, this is literally backfiring on us. I mean, this, this, is, this is really causing much of the problem today is that we are convincing ourselves uh, that there's nothing we can do. We're convincing ourselves that we're addicted. And look, the, the, uh, we put this label of addiction on everything. 
it, addiction has a specific definition. Addiction is a persistent compulsive dependence on a behavior or substance that harms the user. It is yes. a pathology. A habit is not an addiction. There's a big, big difference. What's interesting is that we jump to this term. And I, for a while, I was, I was really curious, why do we love to call things addictive? You know, things that, that, that we find ourselves um, getting distracted with. Why do we like to use that term? And the reason, I think, is because when we call something an addiction, there's a pusher. Mm. There's a dealer. There's someone who's doing it to us. And so it gives us a exit route to say, well, what can I do? Right? <laughs> my kids are acting in these ridiculous ways. It's not my fault as a parent. It's not their fault. Something is doing it to them, <laughs> right? Or, or to ourselves, right? Well, I, I can't help it. These algorithms are apparently manipulating my brain. They're hijacking my brain, as, as many critics will tell you. Uh, and of course, that, that gives us uh, an escape route. Whereas when we call it what it really is, and by the way, big asterisks here, some people really are addicted. Yes. Right? Some people really do become addicted. And that is a pathology. We, yes. you know, we know it's about 1% to 5% of the population, depending on the, the various substances. Those people do need help. And they need, a special, they need to be dealt with in a special way. Uh, but I think this idea that everything is addicting everyone is really hurting us. It's this victimization idea that, in fact, causes learned helplessness. It causes yes. people to stop trying, and that's, in yes. fact, very, very dangerous. And so we just need to be able to, to, to understand that uh, words really matter, that when we yes. use a word like addictive, as opposed to calling it what it really is for the majority of us, overuse. Yeah. I mean, how, uh, how disarming is that term? When I go from saying tech is addictive versus tech is something that some people overuse, <laughs> all of a sudden, wait a minute, I got to do something. And it's not that, that these tech companies don't play a role. Look, I am not a tech apologist. There's a lot of things that I think we need to hold big tech accountable for. However, this one particular area yeah. around behavioral design, is tech something that is so manipulative that we can't do anything about it? That is rubbish. It is not helpful. It's in fact hurtful. And so instead of you know, holding our breath, waiting for these companies to do something. You know, if you do that, if you hold your breath, waiting them to, for them to make products less engaging, you're going to suffocate, right? If you, if you wait for the regulators to do something about it, well, why? Why are you sitting on your hands? We can do something right now to put these products in their place. And it's important to realize that when we start, you know, creating this moral hierarchy of, you know, Facebook bad, but football, that's okay. Yeah. Or watching too much news, that's fine right? Or, you know, even reading too much. Look, you know, my, my daughter was obsessed with Harry Potter. One day she read for five hours, Harry Potter. That's too much Harry Potter, right? Any medium can be overused because it comes at the opportunity cost of what else you could do with your time. And I think that's a much more rational and helpful approach than just blaming, uh, you know, these tools for, for making us do things we don't want to do because the problem is much bigger. The problem is really this deeper problem of all distraction. That's a much more interesting and helpful approach. And I think in, in spending your time in, in writing Hooked and, and creating the code in which many organizations and tech companies and, and philanthropic businesses use to help to drive habituation um, or habit formation within, within products, hopefully that now helps us to start to decouple that, to, to, to shine a light on the things um, that we, we can control, that we can see. Um, that we can start to, to to build framework around that, and sometimes, and I think we'll, we'll we'll get to in our discussion. Sometimes the solution to tech can also be more tech. Absolutely. So, so a, a large component of, of your book is actually advising on other programs that can just be helpful uh, in, in decluttering. 
Um, but if we, if, we, if we looked at sort of your original hook model and we started with the trigger and that's sort of our ex external or our internal trigger, then we move to sort of the ease of the action, um, the variable rewards. We know the variable rewards are, are really powerful in driving long-term behaviours. And then sort of finally sort of our, our investment, our sunk cost, our sense of endowment and ownership. So if that's sort of our hooked model, our starting point, I'd love if, if you're able to sort of talk our listeners through um, the indistractable model. Um, the sure. framework that you have developed that I think is uh, I, 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 maybe a question, could it have been written if you didn't write Hooked? No, I don't think it could have been uh, because I think it was, and, and this is why I, I wrote this book because, um, you know, a question I oftentimes get is how did the guy who wrote Hooked uh, get the gall to now write Indistractable, getting yeah. us that's that's everybody's first question as if i didn't think about that <laughs> and and of course my response is well who better right i'm an industry insider i know exactly what these technologies can and can't do as opposed to an outsider some academic or a pundit uh that doesn't understand the capabilities of behavioral design and doesn't know the achilles heel and so absolutely i i think i i writing hooked makes me uniquely qualified. Yes. Uh, and look, you know, the book is full. You, you read the book, you know, it's full of helping you uh, of tactics to help you, uh, stop using these technologies. I, I don't have any vested interest in Facebook yes. or YouTube or any of this guy could, I could give a shit whether you use these products. I hope you stop using them if they don't serve you. What I want you to do is to look at them critically. And to not say, okay, this is melting my brain. This is evil. And then what ends up happening when we tell people that they beat themselves up because they still find themselves using it. What I want people to do is to realize that, look, this is almost like our relationship with alcohol, right? We're teenagers right now. These tech companies are all teenagers. And we ourselves, our relationship with these technologies are, is, is, uh, is prepubescent. And so here's what happened. We went on a, on a binger. We drank too much. We got intoxicated by many of these technologies. And now we're waking up with a hangover the night after, and we're saying to ourselves, never again. And our impulse is to just shut them all down and never use them. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that doesn't make any sense, right? There's nothing wrong with alcohol. Alcohol can be used in a perfectly wonderful way. There's nothing wrong with getting tipsy with friends once in a while. Now, of course, some people do become addicted to alcohol. We call those people alcoholics. And of course, we need special uh, methods to help those people. But it's ridiculous to think that everyone who drinks gets uh, becomes an alcoholic, right? We went through this already during prohibition in the United States, that, that moralistic point of view that, you know, the masses can't handle their alcohol. And so we must ban it from them is exactly what we see today with this discussion around social media. No, the answer is how do we use it responsibly? How do we mm. grow up and realize there's lots of good things with these technologies, but we have to put them in their place. We have to get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best of us, as opposed to this knee jerk scapegoat reaction that uh, everything about it is, is awful. And so, oh, so sorry, sorry. No, no, you go, you keep going. Yeah. And, and so that's really the, 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 the backbone of this discussion when it comes to indistractable uh, is walking through some of the similar principles. So for example, well, let me back up and, and just define what I mean by distraction. I think this is an important term. You know, mm. Words really, really matter uh, if we're going to be precise about what we're talking about. So let's define distraction. Distraction, the best way to understand what distraction really is, is to understand what it is not. Distraction, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Both traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. 
So and you'll notice also that both traction and distraction end in the same five-letter word. They both end in the word action, A-C-T-I-O-N. Traction and distraction both end in that word, reminding us these are things that we do, not things that happen to us, but actions that we take. So traction is any action that you take with intent, something that pulls you towards what you want. The opposite of traction is distraction, any action you take that pulls you away from what you want, anything that you are doing that is not with intent. So this helps us in a few ways. One, it stops us from this silly moral hierarchy of what you do with your time is ridiculous and a waste of time, but what I do with my time is perfectly legitimate. That's ridiculous. If you play video games with intent, enjoy it. If you meditate with intent, enjoy it. If you watch television or Netflix with intent, great, do it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's traction as long as it's consistent with your values and done with intent. And so that's really a a very important point. Second, the other really important point is that when we think about traction versus distraction, it makes us call our bluff when it comes to these, what I call pseudo work tasks. So let me, let me see if this has happened to you. This used to happen to me all the time. I'd sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now it's time for me to write. It's time for me to do something very difficult, something that I typically get distracted doing. But today is the day I'm going to work on that big project. I'm going to do that hard task that I've been putting off. Right after I check email, or right after I look at that Slack channel, or just check the news real quick. That's kind of, you know, it's worky stuff. I, should, I need to do that anyway. I'll just go ahead and do that now, right? Wrong. Because when you think about traction versus distraction with this model, anything that is not what you intended to do with your time is instantly distraction. Yes. And that's really, really important to understand because distraction tricks us. It makes us think that what we're doing is what we should be doing, but in fact, it's the opposite. We need to do, we need to plan ahead to make sure we do what we say we're going to do. And so that's the first place to start is to understand this new model. You can almost think about it like a horizontal line, traction to the right, distraction to the left. Now, the other two components are what are the factors that influence our actions that lead to either traction or distraction? Two things, external triggers, or internal triggers. And this is much of the same research that I, that I uh, cite in, in Host, that external triggers are things in our environment that prompt us to action, right, to either traction or distraction with something, some kind of information in our environment. So the pings, the dings, the rings, anything that gives you information for what to do next. So if you wake up in the morning and your alarm clock is ringing and it's reminding you to get out of bed and go to the gym and that's what you plan to do, that's an act of traction, well then terrific, that external trigger is serving you. But if you're sitting with your daughter as I was and you plan to be fully present with someone you love and then your phone rings at you and you pick it up and get distracted with uh, Facebook or email or whatever, well now that's moving you to do an action you didn't intend to do. And that of course is distraction. And now it's not serving you, you are serving it. And so those are the external triggers. And, but then actually the most important of these four parts of the indistractable model and the source of the majority of, our, of the triggers that lead to distraction are not the external triggers. It's not what most people think about when we think about the, the pings, dings, rings, and things. It's actually the internal triggers. Internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states that prompt us towards traction or distraction. In fact, all behavior is prompted by one thing, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. And this kind of goes against some of the folk psychology out there. I mean, neuroscientists will be familiar with this, but a lot of people think that um, 
motivation is all about pleasure and pain, right? This is Freud's pleasure principle, some version of carrots and sticks, whether it's internalized carrots and sticks, you know, psychological states, uh, uh, but, uh, or physiological states, whether it's, you know, if you're uh, cold, you put on a coat, that feels uncomfortable, so you put on a coat. If you're hungry, that doesn't feel comfortable, so you eat. So these are physiological states. But the same is true for psychological states. So when we are lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check Reddit or stock prices, sports scores, the news, anything, all of these things that solve this uncomfortable state of boredom. So the first step in the indistractable model has to be mastering internal triggers. Because one of the fundamental truths I, I learned in writing this book over the past five years is that time management is pain management, right? Even seeking something that feels pleasurable is itself an escape from discomfort, mm -hmm. right? Wanting, craving something. There's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically speaking, that is exactly true. So and from an evolutionary perspective, I think you're right. I mean, right. Thank, thank, thank heavens. Right, right. That's right. So the brain, the way the brain gets us to do anything is by creating this, this, uh, uh, this homeostatic response, this uncomfortable, destabilizing psychological state that we seek to restore balance to. And we do that. We restore that balance by acting, by doing something. And so that means that if every behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, time management is pain management. So that has to be the first step to managing distraction is learning ways to master our internal triggers. Then the second step, is to make time for traction. The third step is to hack back those external triggers we talked about earlier. And the fourth step and final step has to be done last or there it can actually backfire, is to prevent distraction with pacts. Uh, as product makers, as entrepreneurs, uh, is that we get to find and solve people's pain. <laughs> so we don't wanna create them, uh, right? People will see through that and they'll, they'll stop being our customers. We don't wanna put them in pain. We wanna find their pain and find solutions to that discomfort. So, okay, so step one, as I mentioned earlier, is to, ma is to master these internal triggers. And there's a whole host of techniques that you can use to do that. But let's just, for the sake of time here, I'll move on to the second step, which is to make time for traction. And this comes mm -hmm. from this idea. Uh, well, let me back up, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. So when I was researching this book, I talked to a friend of mine uh, who told me about how distracting everything is. She can't get anything done. Because, you know, what's going on in the news and her boss wants this and her kids wants that and her husband wants this and then she just doesn't have time to do anything in her day. She can't seem to get anything done. And so I said, wow, that's, that's really tough. You know, can, can I see what it is you got distracted from today? Can I see your calendar? And she kind of looks at me funny and she takes out her phone and she opens her calendar app and it's blank. There's nothing on it. It's just white space. Maybe there's a dentist appointment or something on there. And so this brings up a really, really important point that we cannot call something a distraction unless we know what we got distracted from, which means we have to plan out our day. How do we plan out our day? We turn our values into time. And so I talk about these three life domains. This is done by, has been done by many people throughout history, yes. but this idea of three life domains, you are at the center. Then you have your relationships, the outer, the, the, the middle ring, and then the outermost ring is your work, uh, your your workplace uh, environment. And I so, suspect many people feel like they've flipped on the on on the other direction here. I suspect that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. That they think everything is about work, and then we know who pays the price of that, right? Yes. You, you, who pays the price is your kids, your relationships, your uh, civic groups, your uh, yourself, your body. You don't take care of your health. You don't keep growing your mind. 
And so that's who really pays the price when, when work crowds out everything else. And so one of the critical techniques I talk about in the book is this idea of schedule syncing. And this is just using, you know, some, by the way, I detest those self-help books that are all about personal anecdotes, right? Uh, take a cold shower in the morning because that's what I did and it worked great. Well, where's the peer-reviewed study? So everything in my book has peer-reviewed studies behind it. I'm, I, you know, the, you, you saw the, uh, the appendix is, is pretty, pretty substantial. Everything and is- And you've poured some cold, cold water on some, some other lovely pieces yes. of like, like ego depletion and, and willpower. And I think that's a, it's always lovely yeah. to read. Absolutely. We should, we should get to that as well. But, uh, but the idea here is that you're basically doing what's called setting an implementation intention, very well researched technique, which is just a fancy way of saying, uh, planning out what you will do and when you will do it. But the problem is almost nobody does this. (laughs) Two thirds of Americans don't keep any sort of calendar. Mm -hmm. And the one third of Americans who do don't keep what's called a time box calendar where we actually plan out every minute of our day. Now, there's one group of people, in my experience, now this is not peer-reviewed, this is just in my experience researching the book, I've not done an extensive survey, there's one group of people that, with almost without exception, almost 100% of people who I interviewed for this book who were of this type of person did do this technique, and that is C-level executives. If you meet a C-level executive at almost every company, they already do this, right? They keep a, a Typically, it's a paper printout of where they're supposed to be by the minute and what they're supposed to do with that time. Now, this is a technique all of us can do. I'll give you a link for the show notes. I built this free uh, calendar template tool because I kept getting asked for what tool you should use. I think Gmail and, and those tools are just overbuilt. So I built a really simple calendar template. And the idea is that you just make your ideal week, right? Take into account the you domain, the relationship domain, and the work domain so that you are living out your values in those three domains. And by the way, I'm not gonna tell you what your values should be, it's whatever you think your values should be. So if taking care of your physical health is one of your values, where is that time on your calendar? I need to see it on your calendar. If uh, being with your, your church group or your friends, your mates is important to you, where is it on your calendar? And then of course, when it comes to our work domain, the various things that make you excel at your job, those things need to be on your calendar or they're just gonna get pushed off. We know what's going to happen. Uh, this is called prioritizing the inputs rather than the outputs. You know, so many of us have been told, we'll just put everything on a to-do list and it'll get done. Well, that doesn't work. Of course it doesn't work. And you, we know it doesn't work because we have all those to-do lists and the, the bottom half keeps going from one day to the next to the next like, to the next. Why? Because those are the outputs. What we need to consider are the inputs. So making a to-do list is great, but that's step one. Step two is finding where on your calendar you're going to do each of those tasks. So that's what making time for traction is all about. Uh, It's about turning your values into time and then synchronizing your schedule with the various stakeholders in your life, like your, 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 your domestic partner, your workplace colleagues. Very, very important to do. And as you say, there's, there is time for Facebook, there is time for, for, for hanging out and watching the football or going very deep in YouTube, so long as that's aligned with the values in which you set. And I think- Absolutely. For, for me, that was a sort of a critical point in actually, I mean, many of us have a work calendar, right? So we know what we're doing between working hours and, 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 and some of us have that down to a 15 minute or a half hour schedule. But very rarely as, as, you, as you talk, and, and this is where it sort of does get into, um, there, there is discipline, right? There is tough work in 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 being indestructible. There's focus in in achieving this. If, if, well, if you, yes and yes and no. I mean, I I you know I, I get this question a lot from from friends who say, "Wow, you've turned into a very yeah. uh, self-disciplined person. Uh, you didn't used to be that way." That's exactly right. I actually 
do not have a lot of self-control. That's why I use these techniques. You know, it's because I know that we need systems in place in yes. order to prevent us from impulsiveness. And so here's the thing. This is a mantra I, I want folks to remember is that the antidote to impulsiveness, right? Impulsiveness is when we do these things in the moment that then we later regret. The antidote for impulsiveness is forethought. So it doesn't matter what algorithms these tech companies use. It doesn't matter what distractions come your way. If you plan ahead, you can beat those distractions, right? If the chocolate cake is on the way to your mouth when you're trying to lose weight, you've lost already. It's too mm -hmm. late. If mm -hmm. you're sleeping next to your cell phone every night, too late. They're going to get you. Of course, these companies understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. If you don't take steps in advance to put these technologies in their place, of course, they're going to get you. But the antidote is always forethought. We can take steps today. I mean, that is one thing that we can do better than any other creature on the face of the earth is that we can see what's going to happen with higher fidelity than any other animal. And so that's our gift. That's what we should use to make sure we don't do things we don't want to do later on. And part of that, I think, and we'll, and we'll get to that in, in, in our discussion, but as we move to contracts and Ulysses contracts and, and effort based right. contracts, I mean, these are things that, um, thankfully, with our prefrontal cortex, we can, we can actually plan ahead and, and, and put in advance. So it makes perfect sense um, that, that we go there. But before we get to, to contracts, I think um, the removal of external triggers, as we've, we've, we've touched upon the, 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 uh, the potency of some of these internal triggers, um, this boredom, this rumination that might send us to, towards... Um, devices, but external trigger seems to be the one that certainly if we're thinking on the reverse side, again, going back to hooked, these are the, this, right. the, this is the buzz in your pocket. This is that, that little red number that pops on my inbox that tells me sort of how, how, how deep I am. Um, it can be quite easy for us to, um, to, to jump to devices when we think of hacking back distractions. And in the book, I think you, you cover a really lovely example in, in hospital um, medication um, uh, misuse or, or, or essentially um, nurses handing out the wrong, wrong medication. A lovely intervention. I was wondering if you might be able to share that with our listeners. I just thought it was a lovely, simple one. It takes sure. us away from tech. Yes, exactly. So, you know, external triggers are these, uh, th these d things that prompt us towards distraction or traction uh, with some kind of information in our, in our environment. And so, you know, it's, it's very relatively easy to hack back. And when we think about the analog of, of what these nurses faced every day, we see it every day in the open floor plan office right? That colleagues just giving each other eye contact or saying, hey, you want to, you, you'll never believe this gossip that I just heard or, you know, whatever it might be. That itself is a large source of distraction. We're not going to change open floor plan offices. That's not going anywhere. So what we can do, however, is we can learn from these nurses and find ways to hack back the external triggers that don't serve us. So inside every copy of Indistractable is a piece of cardstock that you can pull out of the book, fold into thirds, and put this sign on your screen, on your computer monitor, that says, I'm indistractable, please come back later. And so this works to tell people, this is my focused work time, right? You're hacking back the external trigger of your colleagues stopping by your desk and saying, can I talk to you for just a minute when you're doing focused work? Now, you don't want to be in focus work all day long, obviously. I want you to make time for the relationships in your office as well. But when you set out the time to say, nope, in the morning, 9 a.m., first thing, I need two hours. I need a focused block of work to think, to, 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 to do my actual work. 
well, then this would be a great time to hack back those external triggers. Uh, over time, I think we've, we've evolved to, to work with headphones, even if we're not even listening to music. Like, What is the subtle cue of actually I'm, I'm focusing here? I know in the book you mentioned uh, your wife's concentration crown. What is, uh, right. what, is the, what is the powerful external signal that, that asks for us not to be interrupted? And that's, yeah. I think, really important as we, as we talk. It's very easy for us to go to tech. Um, so, but, but distractions is uh, what's taking us away from, from what we're aiming to, 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 to move towards in, in, in traction. But then we have email. Yeah. And I love, I love you, you frame email as the, the mother of all habit forming products, right? So it's a real toxic mix um, you articulate in the book of, right. of variable rewards, of, of, of sort of the sense of reciprocity that we have to, to, the, to the sender, to the natural default that we all fall um, within uh, an email chasm. Right, right. And, and so the email is, uh, you know, the, I, from, from folks that I talked to in terms of, of wanting to break free of distraction, email was perhaps top of the list in terms yeah. of yeah, yeah. the biggest time waster I work, that and meetings. And so I, I have a chapter devoted to how to make meetings indistractable. I have a chapter devoted to how to make e- email indistractable. And so there are, there are several techniques you can use here. One is this formula that I call uh, TNT. And TNT stands for the total time you spend on email, big T, equals the number of emails you receive, N, times the time you spend per email. So TNT, reminding us how email can blow up a potentially productive day. And so what you have to do is to tackle both sides of the equation. If you really break it down to first principles, you have to tackle the number of messages you receive every day and the time you spend per message. Pretty simple, right? Just math. So there are several techniques to do this. Uh, you know, and some include just learning how to use the t- existing technology to our benefit. For example, you know, many of us, every time we get an email, we immediately write back. Yeah. And for most emails, that's a mistake. Uh, we, with a, uh, there was a study in the Harvard Business Review that found that 25% of the emails that the average knowledge worker receives, they did not need to receive. And 25% of the emails they send, they did not need to send. So it is a huge, huge time waster. And what happens is that we start playing this email ping pong game back and forth and back and forth. And that doesn't serve us. That just wastes more and more and more time with more of these superfluous external triggers. So, so there's a few things we can do. One is that we can delay delivery, right? I understand the, the urge to get that email out of your inbox. It feels like your to-do list. But there's nothing that says that you have to get that email sent uh, and received at the same instantaneous moment. Remember, that you, if you want to reduce the number of emails you receive, you have to reduce the number of emails you send. For me, that was uh, so obvious in retrospect. Send fewer <laughs> emails, receive fewer emails. Right. It's, it's obvious. Uh, everything is obvious when you know the answer. But yes. how do you do that? How do you, send future, uh, how do you send fewer emails? Well, you reduce the number of emails you send in a unit of time. So, for example, how much do you hate Friday afternoon emails? They're horrible, right? Like, well, the weekend's about to start. Don't send me an email at, at 5, 6 p.m. when I'm about to go home for the weekend, and now I got to check my email inbox over the weekend. When, when you, I understand the, the urge to get it out of your inbox, fine, but there, you know, every program today, whether it's Gmail, whether it's Outlook, has send later. So you, you just use this one function that says, I want the person to receive this email Monday morning as opposed to Friday evening, and now you've saved their inbox for the entire weekend. Simple tool that we just need to start using more of. Another uh, tactic that a friend, Shane Snow, told me, who's a fellow author, told me that this technique saves him 90% of the time he used to spend on email, 9-0. And this is interesting from a behavioral design perspective. So 
it turns out where we may waste the most time with email is not the checking or the replying. Where we waste the most time is the rechecking. So this is how it typically goes, right? You get an email the first time, you read it, you, you know, go back to check the next email in the string, and you check the next email, right? And if you don't reply, then you're likely to check that email maybe two, three, four, five times because each time you forgot what that email said and you don't know exactly when it needs a reply. So that becomes this, this variable reward of, oh, yeah, what was in that email again? Let me just check that. Was that urgent? I, what did it say again? Let me recheck it. And that's where we get this pileup of, of thousands of emails in our inbox uh, because we, we waste so much time checking and rechecking emails until, you know, many people just say, well, if it's important, it'll float back to the top of my email. But that's horrible, right? I, I can't stand these people who don't reply to their emails because they think, well, you know, if it's really that important, they'll reply later. No, here's what you need to do. Every time you receive an email, you can only do three things with it. Either you can archive or delete it. Or I want you to label it with the one piece of information that is the most important thing from a time management perspective. The most important thing in an email from a time management perspective is not what is in the email. The most important thing in that email is when does it need to reply? Mm. And so you have two choices. You either label it with today or you label it with this week. So if the email can wait a little while, nothing's going to happen if the email you know, is responded to, let's say in a week's time, let it simmer for a while. You would be amazed how many emails, if you let them sit for just a week, don't actually need a reply. People figure out their own problems or they just are crushed under the weight of some other priority and are no longer important. So those are the this week emails. Then your email inbox, now you went from an email inbox of all this stuff that needs a reply at some point to only things that you have to process today, the things that are actually urgent that you need to reply to sometime today. Then refer back to step two, make time for traction. You should have time in your calendar to batch process your emails. This has been shown to be a very, very effective technique. So in my calendar, it's about an hour and a half every day. That's my email time. That's when I'm going to batch process all these emails. Now, I might choose to have those sent later on. That's a different, that's what we talked about earlier in terms of sending later. But that batch processing is highly, highly effective. And I only need to check to reply to the emails that I have marked as ones that need a reply today. So every email only gets touched twice. Once when you open it and label it, the second time when you respond to it. And being mindful for us, being overly generous with CCing for status or for connectedness. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's, another point, right? that's an exponential challenge, right? Um, the, 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 lovely, the lovely CCing. Yeah. And, you know, there is one point here that, that is also worth uh, mentioning as well, that, you know, one of the, the, the perhaps the overarching theme of this book is to be careful of proximate causes. So for many problems, there's a proximate cause mm -hmm. and there's a root cause. And the proximate cause for this problem of distraction is our technology, our tool. So we blame email, we blame social media, we blame things for distracting us. But those, of course, they play a role. Of course, those are the tools we use, but that's the proximate cause. Yeah. There is a level deeper that we need to think about from a psychology perspective of why do people feel the need to respond yeah. quite so much? And so there's a whole section in the book about why distraction at work is a symptom of corporate dysfunction. Because if you think about it, we know we talked about those internal triggers and we came to the conclusion that all action is driven by a desire to escape discomfort. And so we have to ask ourselves, 
if people keep sending so many stupid emails, if they keep replying again and again, I mean, just today, oh my God, I have someone who insists on talking to me for 30 minutes when they clearly could have just put what they want in the email. We insist on calling these, these meetings and sending emails superfluously. Just, you know, why do we do this? Turns out that for many people, they're doing this to escape discomfort. Mm. And this is an important thing to realize. For many people, they call a meeting because they don't want to think for themselves. They want other people to solve the problem for them and they'll you know, get to sit there or hear themselves talk out loud. Many people enjoy that as well. Uh, or for many people, they experience this condition. This is a research from Stansfield and Candy where they found that there's a condition, there's a confluence of two factors in the workplace for some workplaces that literally cause, not just associate, but actually have been shown to cause anxiety and depression disorder. So there are some workplaces that literally drive us crazy. And these are workplaces that have the confluence of high expectations and low control. These type of toxic work environments are the root cause of why we get distracted. Because what do people do when they feel down, when they feel anxious, when they feel stressed, when they feel symptoms of depression? They're desperate. Something I can control. Exactly. They're, They're desperate for something that they can get a grip on. What do I have control over? How many emails I send? How many meetings I call? And so that's why I say that distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. If you find that your workplace is constantly connected and there's no time to disconnect, then there's likely other skeletons in the closet as well. Yeah, and I think a really important chapter in a, a, the narrative of the book, moving from the individual to under, understanding our own sort of in, internal and external triggers to at a cultural level. And I think you, you spend a bit of time talking about psychological safety at work. Mm-hmm. And how actually being quite open for exposing our vulnerabilities and, and, and addressing these challenges can actually start to be um, to, to, to bridge the gap of, of, of distraction. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. So I, I profile uh, a few companies that have managed to overcome uh, distraction. One actually converted Boston Consulting Group went from a culture yes. that was very toxic. That had there was the, the 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 exemplification of a company that had high expectations and low control. I actually used to work at BCG. It was my first job out of university, and I can testify to that culture. It was a very hard place to work. They've since reformed that culture, and now they're rated as uh, one of America's best places to work. And their, uh, their employee retention has gone way up, their churn way down because of these cultural changes. Another company I profile that's particularly interesting is Slack. So Slack mm-hmm. is the world's largest group chat uh, app. And it's one that consistently came up when I talked to people uh, about distraction. Many people told me about how uh, Slack was the source of their distraction, this horrible tool that keeps them tethered to the office day and night. And so I thought I'd pay Slack a visit. Because I would assume if, you know, it's logical to presume that if technology, yeah, yeah, if if it's the source of all this distraction, then who uses Slack more than Slack? Well, it turns out that Slack doesn't have this problem with distraction, right? You would think if, if, if technology is causing distraction, well, then these should be the most distracted people on earth. But that's not the case at all. That in fact, at Slack, at 6 p.m., the office is empty. On nights and weekends, if you use Slack on nights and weekends, you're reprimanded. They, they don't do that here. And so why? Why does that happen? So it turns out that it's, there's three factors to a company that doesn't struggle with distraction, a company that has a healthy company culture. And these three traits are, number one, it's a company that allows for psychological safety. Now, psychological safety is this idea that you can voice concerns without fear 
of, uh, of retribution. You won't be fired for raising your hand and saying, hey, I have a question here. This isn't really working out. What do we think? Can we talk I've about it? an issue with all these CC emails floating around. Right, right, exactly. And that's exactly it. This is a problem like any other problem. Right? And so it's, it's like a dysfunctional family where people are scared to talk about their family problems because they don't want to get chewed out by the, the angry parent. It's the same way in the workplace. When people can't talk about one problem, it also turns out they can't talk about any of their problems. So number one, it's a company that provides psychological safety. Number two, it's a company that provides a forum for discussing their problems. So at Slack, it's fascinating. They actually use Slack in a very interesting way. At BCG, they actually have these meetings. They have the, they, they call them PTO meetings, pay, um, um, uh, predictable time off meetings. They have these meetings where they discuss uh, how to plan ahead to give people predictable time off. Now at Slack, they don't do it in person. They do it over Slack. They have these Slack channels. One of them is called Beef Tweets, where you can post anything that's pissing you off about the company. <laughs> and it turns out that employee uh, that, that management looks at these comments, yeah. giving employees a sense of agency and control, right? We talked about how low control is a problem. And so it gives, uh, it gives employees a sense of agency and control, knowing that management is looking at those, uh, those problems being voiced in that forum. It's interesting. They actually use emoji to, to do this, they'll just use the eyes emoji. So Stuart Butterfield, the CEO, will just say, "Yep, I saw that comment." They'll use the eye emoji to say, "I I, I see that comment," and you know, we're, 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 it's been acknowledged. So number one is psychological safety. Number two is an environment or forum to discuss these problems. And the number three is that manage has to exemplify what it means to become indistractable. That when uh, when employees walk into an organization and management is constantly on their devices, then employees learn, well, this is what's expected here. To get ahead, I have to do this too. And then of course, all time becomes work time. Whereas at Slack, if you walk into Slack company headquarters, you will see written on the wall in big pink letters, it says, work hard and go home. Not something you would expect in a Silicon Valley company. But it is part of their ethos. It is part of, from, from Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down, that is part of the company culture. They exemplify what it means to be, be indistractable. And the final component of, of, of the model, we've, we've touched on this, but I think it's important to sort of semi-close semi on, uh, is the role of these sort of packs, distraction packs. And how, as a sort of a distinctively different um, being that we are, we can actually set ourselves up for for, for commitment in the future. Whether it's your, uh, you write about your sort of burn for burn. Um, so either you go to the gym or you got to burn a hundred a hundred dollars tapping into loss aversion. But it's right. a really, I, I, I keen to know sort of with respect to distraction itself, why you think commitment is such a powerful driver there. Right. Okay. So I have to, I have to, to explain this, I have to give a word of warning here that this is what we want to do last. Many people jump into this technique prematurely and it can backfire because if you don't first know how to master those internal triggers, how to make time for traction, how to hack back the external triggers, you will certainly fail with this last technique. This has to come last. And this technique is involves pre-commitments. It, it involves uh, taking some kind of action in advance to make sure you don't get distracted later on. Uh, and we do this throughout society, right? When we have a, a, a retirement savings account that has stiff penalties for early withdrawal, that is a pre-commitment. And so we can use these pre-commitments to help us steer clear of distraction, to make sure that we don't get distracted by something. So there are three types of pacts. Uh, one is an effort pact, there's a price pact, and there's an identity pact. 
Uh, an effort pact is when we put some bit of friction, some bit of effort between us and something we don't want to do. So for example, in my household, every evening at 10 p.m., the internet router turns off. Okay. Now I could find a way to turn it back on, but of course that requires some effort that requires some work. And so that prevents me from doing something I don't want to do. That's an effort pack. And there are many, many other different effort packs we can use. I thought I must send you, I saw an image the other day of it. There was a a gentleman who locked his head in the bird bird cage and gave his wife the key. So he would (laughs) stop smoking. That's a lovely sort of Ulysses contract, great effort pack. Right. That's, a, that's an extreme example, but absolutely. That's, that's one uh, exemplification of it. And then the second type of pact is a price pact. And so price pact inflicts some kind of cost to doing something you don't want to do. And so it's actually been shown to be the number one most effective smoking cessation program available hmm. is when you have the smoker put down some bit of money, their own money, that they can only get back when they finish smoking. And interestingly enough, these studies, so this particular study said, uh, that will give you $800 if you are smoke-free within eight months, uh, six months, sorry, and they did, they did urine tests to confirm that there wasn't any nicotine in their system. So if you were smoke-free for six months, you would get $800, or you could get $600, and you had to put in the pot $150. So you would get $800 back, but first you had to put down $150. And the, the technique where people put in some money was much, much more effective. And so that technique of putting some skin in the game uh, is one we can use on ourselves. For example, uh, I used to struggle with obesity. So I I was clinically obese at one point in my life. No longer. I'm at about 11% body fat. This is is the best shape I've ever been in my life. And a big part of it is because I I make a pact with myself every day. And that pact is called the burn or burn technique. And the burn or burn technique works like this. Every morning when I wake up, I go to my closet to get dressed. And there is a calendar, a wall calendar inside my closet. Now, taped to today's date on the calendar is a crisp $100 bill. And above the calendar on the shelf is a lighter. And I have a choice to make. I can either burn some calories by going to the gym or doing some kind of physical activity six days a week. And this is a pact I made with myself. So this is how I defined it, six days a week of physical activity. I can either burn some calories or I have to burn the $100 bill. That's my choice. And for three and a, and I know people say, oh, that's crazy. I don't want to burn the money. Well, of course you don't want to burn the money. That's the point. <laughs> and so for three and a half years, I've gotten in the best shape of my life, exercising six days a week, and I have my money. I haven't burnt it. <laughs> and it's so like that's the pay as you don't go gyms. I think it's exactly. another way of uh, I think about how much money. Yeah. Right. How much money we pay for dieting programs so that we'll do basically what we know we should do, right? Eat right, exercise. That's it. There's nothing more you need to know. And if you know that principle, the 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 motivation, the consistency will get you to answer any question you don't know. You'll find it on the internet. You don't need to pay all this money to a, 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 a weight loss program. We basically know what to do. Instead, make a bet with yourself with the money you would have spent that if you don't do what you want to do. You, you don't get that money back. The money's burned. Um, and don't give it. Sorry. Man. No, I was just going to say, there's a program where you give it to charity. That's a little tricky because some people like giving money to charity. Well, most people like giving to charity. So they say, oh, that's okay. Less effective for some, but maybe that's not bad for those individuals. But the, exactly. the, the 500 traction pack you talk about are sort of identity packs. And I think this yes. is a really lovely way in how we see ourselves and how we identify. And you, you reference research around sort of the behavior, do I vote or am I a voter? Yeah, and we yeah. really love the simplicity of that identity um, through language or belief um, that can have really powerful impacts. 
Right, right. So, you know, effort packs and price packs, I've heard versions of before. Identity packs, I hadn't heard of before. Uh, and so I codified, I, I made up the term identity pack. I codified a bunch of research that had been up there, uh, been out there for quite a while into this idea that you can actually use your self image as a pact. And this insight came to me from looking at organized religion. Uh, you know, a, a, a Orthodox Jew doesn't t- ask themselves, hmm, should I have some bacon today? No, they don't eat pork. It's what they do or don't do. That's part of their identity. A devout Muslim doesn't say, hmm, I wonder if I should have a gin and tonic. No, devout Muslims do not drink alcohol. It's part of their identity. Uh, I was a vegetarian for five years. And I remember when I was a vegetarian, not eating meat was no big deal because I was a vegetarian. It was part of my identity. So we can use this same identity to help keep us on track. And so this is why my book is titled Indistractable. Mm. We can use this moniker to identify ourselves, not only to others, but also most importantly to ourselves. I am the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. I am indistractable. And that can, in fact, help keep you on track to make sure you don't do something you don't intend to do. And on your journey of becoming indistractable, what's the single biggest thing that you've done? I think in the last little while since I've read the book, I know what's been the single, the first piece of, of, of big impact. But I'd love to know what's the single, what's the single biggest thing you've done? You know, I, I can't point to one technique. I think the strategy is more important than tactics. So tactics yeah, are what you really do, why you do it. And I think that, you know, having this picture in your mind of these four parts right? Master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. The idea here, it's not that you never get distracted. Being indistractable does not mean you never get distracted. I still get distracted every day from something. The idea, however, is that, you know, there's that saying that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And so the idea here is that I don't keep getting distracted like a dummy. Now I know why I'm distracted and I can do something about it. And so what my contribution, I hope, is that people can now say to themselves, huh, okay, was it my internal triggers? Mm. Did I not plan my schedule properly? Was it an external trigger that I can hack back somehow? Could I use a, a, a commitment pack to make sure I don't get distracted next time? That's, I think, that's actually what took me longer than writing the words on the page was codifying this four-part model. Yes. How about for you? What, what's been the most helpful? My, I mean, we're talking the last sort of 48 hours, but literally just having a folder on my desktop that says everything. I nice. just think that's a lovely, beautiful, simple. So everything goes into my everything folder on the desktop. So it's, if, it's, if, if there was the smallest thing you could do to have the biggest impact that I've experienced is that so far. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, it's so interesting. We, I hear, I haven't heard a, 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 a single note uh, reverberator from folks who have read the book. Everybody gives me a different tactic, which is great uh, because look, for sure there will be some tactics you've seen before. For sure there will be lots of tactics you have never seen yes. before. But again, what's more important than just the tactics is the strategy, the picture of okay, now I know what's going on. Where can now I have ideas for how to fix it? And we don't have time this afternoon to go into how this model actually can be applied in a range of different areas, but you, you cover a lot, of, um, a lot of territory from how we might embed this into the lives of our children and, and how we can start to actually arm them with the same sort of skills that we want to be um, picking up ourselves, all the way down to sort of indistractable relationships with our, with our, our, our very close uh, and, our, and our family and friends. So, Nir, it's a, it's a book that's it's one of those sort of read with a pen and as I say, at the very, if, if at the very least, I've now got a folder with, with a, an everything folder on my desktop all the way through to actually uh, identifying within myself the sort of the internal, the externals. I lie, actually. I've also had a, had, had a bit of a notification suite 
uh, over the weekend. So, so, so two things certainly in short short time, but really powerful model, just as just as as Hook was. Thank um, really you. Really powerful model that starts to decouple some of the insight that were found in Hooked and starts to actually arm us with uh, the, the tools, the agency, uh, the understanding, not just sort of the understanding that you can do it, uh, but the understanding from a psychological perspective as to why this might be harder uh, and, and, and why it's so imp- important to do. So I'm uh, really grateful for you to spend time with us uh, on Obehave. Um, can really recommend the book and, and, and thanks so much for your time, Neil. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.